And then when I came, just about to come into the home straight, I could sense that another person was going to try and stop me. And I was just about to get ready to, to sort of fend them off as well. And I realized it was my dad. I just heard his voice saying, Derek, it's me. Uh, and he said, you don't need to do this. I just remember saying, I do. Get me back into lane five. I've got to finish. I've got to finish. And he just turned around and said to me, OK, if you're going to finish this race, we'll finish it together. From Athlete.fm, this is On Your Mark, the backstory of an athlete's journey. I'm your host, Lou Dondero. There are over 8,000 videos with well over 10 million views on YouTube featuring Derek Redman and his inspiring 400-meter sprint in the 1992 Olympic Games, a moment defined as the most memorable in Olympic history when Derek pulled his hamstring halfway through the event, falling down and getting back up to finish the race, along with his father, who rushed out of the stands to help his determined son. Derek's story begins with the lessons he learned as a young boy and why he kept winning races when everyone else was failing. An exciting experience at the age of 19 when he smashed the British 400 meter record under extreme duress. An experience only a few athletes have been through like Michael Jordan. At the age of 22, Derek has to make a dangerous decision that could haunt him for the rest of his life. And of course, the 1992 Olympic race and how the obstacles Derek faced in life gave him the strength and courage to get back up after falling down. A vulnerable moment full of tears and emotions in front of millions of people. Join us as we examine a father and son's relationship that pulled the world together and still inspires millions. I mean, I joke about it now and say it's the race where I got beaten by my dad in the Olympic semi-final. And, you know, I, at this point, I'd forgotten about the crowd. I'd forgotten about everybody else. They, at that point, were not my number one focus. My focus was to finish this race. And there, all of a sudden, I've got, you know, my best friend, my dad, with me, I guess I could just be myself. And, and, and that sort of ended up showing itself in me, just breaking down and, and being me, because as far as I could see, I was in front of, you know, someone who I could be myself with. If the story ended here, our takeaway would be that there is obviously a special bond between Derek and his father, Jim Redmond. But what built the special bond and how how did they arrive at this moment? I started competing at the age of seven um, in primary school over here. Just loved running and jumping. So uh, I asked my parents if they would take me along to the local athletics club, which they did. Uh, and I just was supported by both my parents, but mainly my, my, my dad, because he used to be the, the one who was lumbered with taking me to the local track and standing there in the cold while I was running and jumping and running around in circles. My dad, in his early days, was a truck driver, so he used to spend a lot of time away from homes, uh, from home, and my mum used to sort of bring us up. So one of the things I do remember, and I remember used to be uh, waiting for him to come home, so I used to sit outside or at the front window or the window, one of the windows in, in, in the front of the house, waiting for his rig to go past. And when he used to go past, he always used to give 
a quick toot on his air horns and he used to say like, as he went past and he'd wave and I always used to get excited about that because I knew he'd be home in you know the next sort of 10 15 minutes their bond continued to grow spending countless hours together traveling to and from practicing competitions Jim using that special time to teach and advise young Derek about life working hard racing tactics and to always finish the race my dad was very instrumental in sort of keeping me focused, keeping me disciplined. Even from a young age, was very, very adamant that I went about business like a professional. So when I turned up to track meets, I wouldn't be running around drinking cans of fizzy drinks and eating and goodness knows what and playing soccer and messing around with all. You know, I would sit down and relax and eat the right sort of things and drink the right sort of things and then go and do my warm up and then, you know, prepare for the race the way you would if you was a professional. And he used to make me do that as a, as a, as a youngster. And then at the time I felt I was missing out playing around with all my friends. And then at some point, and I couldn't tell you when the penny dropped that I realized what he was trying to instill into me that, you know, that sort of professionalism, professionalism and, and to do things, uh, to do things properly so I do remember for uh, for a number of years feeling that oh god look at all my mates over there playing football playing soccer and rushing around and having a good laugh and I've just got to sit here out of the sun and you know rest and wait for my race I want to go and have some fun with them but then when we was on the way home and we was on the, the coach that took us there I would be one of the only ones that had won any trophies and medals and all the other kids would be disappointed that they hadn't actually won anything um, and as I say, it, it did become quite apparent that that was no coincidence. In other words, Derek started to win a lot and his reputation followed as the kid who outran everyone. Their tactic, act like a professional and finish the race, every race as hard as you can. Jim's guidance and advice to his son was working and Derek finally realized that his father kind of knew what he was talking about. Uh, I was known for winning all my qualifying rounds in, in any any competition that I went to, if there were heats, semis, you know, semi-finals and then final, I would win all the rounds. And, you know, my dad many years ago said to me, look, you can dictate getting yourself, guaranteeing yourself a good lane. And the other thing he said is because, you know, you get guys that will win a race in whatever time and they will slow down or could win a race in a certain time but they slow down for the last 10 metres, end up qualifying third because they think they're saving energy. And my dad's argument was, how much energy are you saving in the last 10 metres by slowing down from first to third to qualify for that next round? And if you compare that to how much damage will you do by taking yourself out from the situation of having lane three, four, five or six and being either stuck right on the outside lane where you're disengaged from the race or stuck right on the inside lane where the, you know, where the bends are too tight and you can't run a normal race. And, you know, it made common sense to run that little bit harder because you've got 24 hours recovery before the next race as well. And again, something my old man used to say to me was, if you have to slow down in those last 10 metres to save energy and you can't recover in 24 hours, you've got serious problems. And if that ever happened to me where I eased off and two or three people came past me, my dad would have killed me. He would have just, <laughs> you know, um, that wouldn't have been something I would have um, 
you know, wouldn't have wanted to, to be a part a of A long ride home after that, wouldn't it? Oh, it wouldn't have been. He would have made me walk. <laughs> <laughs> Derek continued his dominance in the racing circuit, finding his stride as a 400-meter sprinter. And just in case your memory of high school PE class is a little fuzzy, the 400-meter race is a full-out sprint, one time around the track, and arguably, more than any other distance, puts the athlete's body through torture. Not the sustained chronic pain of a long-distance race, but the severe agony that kicks in once the lactic acid floods the muscles. At this point, it's an absolute mind-over-matter situation for the athlete, who must continue to sprint against every fiber of his body, telling him to stop. Now imagine being sick with the flu. Your body hurts, your head is heavy, and the sheer achievement just to get out of bed and walk to the bathroom deserves a gold medal in itself. Well, Derek's biggest race of his life so far is upon him, and he has the flu. He can't call in sick to the boss, so what's the next best idea? Fake an injury. The day before the race, I was starting to get those feelings of uh, of getting a bit of a cold, you know, just a normal flu. You know, the sore throats, the nose getting a bit congested, and your eyes starting to water, and you're starting to cough, and you know the feelings when you're going to, you know, start to get it. And I was thinking, oh no! So I, I rested for for the for that day. The following day, which was the the morning of the day I was going to race, it actually was getting worse. By the time it was time for me to go down to the track and literally start warming up, I really didn't want to run. My head was hurting. I felt nauseous. I, you know, everything that you, you would expect with a cold was how I was feeling. And I remember warming up for the race, and. I was actually going to pull out of the race and I've mentioned him a couple of times, but one of the other guys in the race was, was Akabusi. Chris Akabusi was in the race. And I remember seeing Chris during the warm up because uh, we're all warming up roughly in the same area. And I said, Chris, I feel terrible. I don't want to run. And Derek was going, come up to me and said, Chris, I'm not feeling too good. I've got a splitting headache. I've been laying down in bed all afternoon and I've got this flu coming on. I don't think I can do this. That's Chris Akabusi, three-time Olympian and the mastermind behind the plot to throw the race with a fake injury. I'm saying, but wait, Derek, you are Oslo. It's, it's, it, and this is, this is the big games. You can't pull out. But he said, Chris, I can't run. I can barely see. You know, my head's pounding. And I said, Derek, if you pull out now, you won't get, potentially, unless you become Olympic champion or world champion, you ain't going to get another invite to this thing. You know, this is a place to be. I'll tell you what, Derek, you know, the agent's going to be fed up with you. The meat organizer's going to be fed up with you. I mean, why would you do that? Listen, fella, what you got to do, come down and let's just see how it goes. Get under the blocks, go around the first turn, go down the back straight, and, you, and if you're still feeling like dog messed warmed up, then you pop a hamstring. Something happens, but at least you still get paid You've still done the race and you're in everyone's good books. I thought, brilliant plan. Fantastic <laughs> idea. So right. I, I kind of stopped my warm up because I felt really bad and I didn't do a complete warm up. Um, the race gets called down. We go and report for the race. We get escorted down onto the track. Um, the guys are setting their starting blocks up. I didn't even set the starting blocks. Where they were put down in the lane was where I left them. I thought that would do. So the whistle goes for the start of the race and we all strip off and stand behind our blocks. The starter says, on your marks. He says, get set. And then the gun goes. That boy, 
He flies out of the blocks, round a turn, down the back straight. I'm thinking, any minute now, this guy's going to pull over. And I remember thinking as I'm running down the back straight, right, I'm going to run to about 230 metres, so there's no mistake that I've run over half distance. So I'll run past the 200 metre mark and I'll keep on going. And I got to the 200 metre mark and I thought, right, another 30 metres and then I'm going to pull up. And I ran about 30 metres. And then I thought, do you know what? I can't hear or sense anybody. I certainly can't see anybody. I must be in front. So I thought, I'll keep on going to 300 metres and then I'll pull up. So I continued running around the top bend and I got to 300 metres and I still can't see anybody. And then I got to 350 metres and thought to myself, why are you going to pull out with 50 metres to go? You might as well keep going. So I, I, I carried on going, expecting everybody to come past me and nobody came past me. And I went over the line and I won the race. It just smashed the British, British record. And I, it, was a 40, it might have been 4482. Uh, but, but whatever, he smashed the British record. I was floundering in the back at 44, 45-4. I couldn't believe it. I'd never beaten Chris before. So, a lot of the guys in, in the race I'd never beaten before. And I was sort of shocked. And I remember looking at the clock and it had a time of 44.82. So my first thought was, oh, the clock's broken. Because my best was 45.5 or something like that. And, and I just thought, oh, the clock's broken. But the clock wasn't broken. His agent runs out, jumping and screaming, excited for Derek's record-breaking run, and encourages him to take a victory lap. It is absolutely amazing what the body can achieve when you shut your brain off. Derek was so ill that his only thought was how bad he felt. His body aches, the heavy head, the nausea. He wasn't focused on the race, the nerves, the TV cameras, or his competition. And by default, his brain wasn't able to trip him up just like Michael Jordan's flu game in the 1997 NBA Finals. No way I should have performed to even my best, let alone go beyond my best, with the way that I felt 15 minutes before my race. I didn't even complete my warm-up because I knew I was going to pull up, so I wasn't really bothered. So, you know, I didn't even warm up correctly, and it just goes to show that nothing has to go perfect for you know leading up to a race for a race to be successful or to be perfect or go beyond perfect because i felt really bad my warm-up was i did maybe half maybe two-thirds of, of of my regular warm-up um whereas beforehand every time i race if i missed anything to me that was it my race was going to go bad i haven't warmed up i haven't done this i haven't done that and i used to think that things were going to go drastically wrong but it it, it proved to me that if you are destined and able to do something, you will do it. In the following years, Derek won first place titles in the World Championship, the Commonwealth Games, and the European Championship. Prior to the 1988 Olympic Games, Derek started battling injuries that plagued both his physical performance and mental grit. Injuries that were so painful that quitting 10 days before the Olympics and giving up years of hard work seemed like the best option, a decision that could possibly haunt him for the rest of his life. You always remember your first Olympics, win, lose, or draw. 
you know, most people will go to their first Olympics for the experience and and that sort of thing. As I said, I had a lot of problems with my Achilles tendons. Some days I could train, then I couldn't, then I could, then I couldn't, then I could. And emotions and everything was going up and down, up and down. And I, you know, I was getting to the point maybe a week, ten days to go before the games where I'd just had enough. I thought, you know what, I, I, I'm going to go home because I can't take this anymore, physically or mentally. It's really starting to, to affect me. And it was actually an American athlete, and I'll tell you her name, Denine Howard. And she was competing for America, certainly in the, in the 4x400 relay, in the mile relay. She may have been in the individual 400, I can't remember. And I remember we were seeing, as you call them trainers, we call them physios. And she happened to be in the training room, the trainer's room as well. And I knew her relatively well because when I was out in America, she wasn't a million miles away and we used to see each other at tracks and at competitions and stuff. And I, and, I, and I remember saying to her, do you know what, I really think I'm just going to give up and go home. And she gave me a brilliant piece of advice. And again, it was something that I've I kind of lived by and I've told this story to a lot of people. And she turned around and said to me, why are you going to go home now? And I said, because I just can't take it. It's just doing my head in. You know, I don't know where I am from one day to another. I could just put myself out of this misery and go home. And she said, you've only got to put up that misery for another 10 days. If you go home now, she said, you will never know whether you could have started on that, you know, started your race. And for the rest of your life after, you'll always be wondering, could I have made it to the start line? Would I have made it? And all that sort of stuff. But she said, if you stay here and it goes wrong, it's only another 10 days, but at least then for the rest of your life, you can live your life knowing there was nothing else you could do to get you to that start line. And I took her advice and I, I, I stayed out in, uh, well, then um, Hong Kong and then flew into, to, um, sorry, uh, into Tokyo and then flew on to, uh, to Seoul. And um, I warmed up for the first round of the 400 and ended up snapping my Achilles tendon and the Achilles tendon is the largest and strongest tendon in the human body. It connects the heel bone to the calf muscles. It's the spongy mass right above the heel. The pain from a snapped Achilles is intense as the tendon has just ripped off your heel bone and calf muscle, leaving the athlete unable to walk. The moment where my Achilles tendon completely failed on me and, and, and ruptured and I couldn't even walk on it, let alone run on it. And believe you me, I tried to run on it. I, I told them to put some painkilling injections and I'll run with a snapped Achilles tendon. I couldn't even flex my foot, but I thought I could just hobble my way around and worry about the second round, that, you know, the following day. And obviously I was advised, well, I wasn't advised, I was told that that's not going to happen and can't happen. And I had to pull out of the race with less than an hour to go, um, which, was, which was heartbreaking, obviously, for me. So I'm on the warm-up track and I've had to make a decision. Well, I didn't make the decision. My, my, my coach and one of our trainers made the decision. And, you know, I, I had to pull out. And I remember watching my heat go off and the guys run and not run particularly quick and they qualified. And it was only after they crossed the line that I realised that's my Olympic dream over.
The year was 1992, and Derek was on top of his game. He had gone through five surgeries to repair both Achilles tendons and ready to make his Olympic mark. He was fresh, healthy, and just won the world championships the year prior with the 4x400 relay team of Roger Black, John Regis, and Chris Akabusi. It was coined the race that shocked the world because they beat the Americans who have dominated the event for years. The 1992 Olympics in Barcelona was Derek's moment. Years of preparation, no hindering injuries or flu symptoms, and his mind was clear and focused. Derek breezed through the qualifying rounds, gaining him the best position for the semifinals. The following story stunned the world, and to this day, continues to inspire millions of people. I mean, obviously I'd won my first two rounds. So I'd run the first round, 24 hours later, I came back and won the second round. And then 24 hours later, it was a semi-final. I went through my same process. Um, you know, as I went down to the track, I had a, a massage as usual from one of the team physios, the same guy had done the two previous days. I did my warm up, I did my all my runs and everything. Everything was absolutely fine. There was no problems. Great weather. Um, I felt good. I was in lane five. I've got a great lane. I've got Steve Lewis inside of me, um, uh, who was not only the Rain Olympic champion, but also one of my training partners. As far as I was concerned, the only competition in the race was Steve. To be honest, at that point, everything was perfect. So the gun goes off. I come out the blocks quite well. I have a very good start. I, I rise nice and slowly. Um, by the time I've done 80 metres, I'm up into my running and I then go into the back straight. And because I was already beginning to catch the people on the outside of me, couldn't hear or see anybody on the inside of me, I decided not to put the burners on. I thought I'm going to save that for the home straight because I was running a lot quicker than I normally run anyway. So I'm striding down the back straight, beginning to make up the stagger on the guys on the outside of me. And then I heard a funny pop. I didn't know what the noise was. But I remember thinking to myself, it was something in the crowd. And, and I remember saying to myself, come on, Redmond, concentrate. Uh, and then I ran another three or four strides. And then I just felt this pain like I've never felt before. And it turns out that that pop was my hamstring popping, basically. And I didn't realize that's what it was at first, because I'm in the middle of Olympic semi-final. I'm thinking about running. My mind is somewhere different to thinking about a muscle in the back of my leg but it was only you know three or four strides later when I completely ripped the muscle apart that obviously the pain of doing that sort of uh, hit home and I just grabbed the back of my leg and I won't say what I said but you can imagine there were some words that would you know were not the most pleasant of words and I, and I just dropped onto the to the floor of the track and then I remember then I remembered where I was I remembered that I was in the Olympic semi-final and I stopped rolling around I stopped moaning and crying and well, I wasn't crying at this stage but I certainly stopped swearing and feeling sorry for myself and I sat up and I remember looking for where all the other athletes were and they by this time now I've got maybe 120 meters 130 meters to go and I remember looking at them thinking if I get up now and start running I'll still catch them and that was what made me sort of stand up and and start start running by this time the pain wasn't my number one concern. My number one concern was catching these guys and finishing in the top four. And I got to the 200 meter mark, as I say, and I thought I'd have a look to see how much I was catching. And these guys had finished. 
that's when I realised it was all over, the dream was over, and I just decided I'm, I'm going to finish this race if it's the last race that I ever run. Between the 200 metre mark and the 300 metre mark, there had been the medical staff, officials, track referees, all sorts of people trying to stop me and get me off the track. And I wasn't having any of it. I was going to finish this race. And then when I came, just about to come into the home straight, I could sense that another person was going to try and stop me. And I was just about to get ready to, to sort of fend them off as well. And I realised it was my dad. I just heard his voice saying, Derek, it's me. Uh, and he said, you don't need to do this. I just remember saying, I do. Get me back into lane five. I've got to finish. I've got to finish. And he just turned around and said to me, OK, if you're going to finish this race, we'll finish it together. And he sort of managed to slow me down from trying to rush the race. And um, I sort of put my arm around him and he put his arm around me. And there, all of a sudden, I've got, you know, my best friend, my dad with me. I guess I could just be myself and, and, and that you know, that was it. That's when all the emotions came out. And I just said, oh, I can't believe this, you know, can't believe this is happening, all this sort of stuff. And my dad was just saying things like, you've got nothing to prove, you're a champion, you know, you'll, you'll be back. Uh, that, that, that was it, we, you know, we crossed over the line. And then I, I got taken to one of the medical rooms and I think I cried like I'd never cried before. Derek was a favorite to win a medal in the 92 Olympic games, but that opportunity was gone. And like most difficult situations, when one door closes, others open up. You just have to stop looking at the closed door and recognize the open ones. Um, it took a while to change for me. Um, if I'm honest with you, it didn't make me a very nice person to be around for the first sort of year or so after it happened. You know, I hated track and field. I felt the world and track and field owed me I shouldn't be the one getting injured. There should be people who are not as good as me that should be getting injured. And, you know, I became what I would say was quite selfish for a while. While I was going through that, for some reason, lots of people were contacting me via email, letters. I had hundreds and thousands of letters from people that I do not know all sorts and, and, and saying how that situation had helped them in their own situation. And again, I'm talking about people that as far as I was concerned had had been dealt a lot worse hand than what I'd been dealt. Do you know what? There's one letter I got from a young American girl. I couldn't even tell you what part of the state she's from. And her name was Lizzie Sowells well or something like that and she wrote a letter she was only a little I know maybe high school even before high school I'm not sure and she had problems sort of spelling and and with her you know English and grammar and that sort of stuff and she had worked really hard to, to win this little medal she was given for a spelling bee or, or a spelling test that she she had done well in and she actually wrote a letter with the medal that she had won, saying that she felt that I deserved it more than she did. Uh, I got a, an email from a guy in Australia two days ago saying that, you know, uh, someone told him about this, he's going through some hard times in his life and it's helped him and thank you very much for what I did back in 1992. And this guy wasn't even born in 1992. Um, you know, so to this day, I still get people contacting me via Twitter, via 
email, whatever, saying how that particular episode has, has you know, helped them in, in their own, in their own, you know, time of need. Being a medal winner in the Olympics has its day of international glory, but that glory fades to a national level, then a town level, then just your inner circle friends and family. Don't get me wrong, winning a medal in the Olympics is the purest form of hard work, dedication, sacrifice, and rising to be the best. But Derek's determination to get back up and finish the race is burned in more memories and hearts than if he had won a gold medal, and his moment continues to inspire millions. Derek is still racing, although he has swapped out his legs for 1,000cc motorcycles and at the age of 49, just became a national champion in kickboxing. He is a father of two beautiful children and travels internationally as a motivational speaker. And if you haven't seen Derek's 1992 Olympic run, you can view it on our blog at athlete.fm. On Your Mark is edited, produced, and hosted by me, Lou Dondero. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes as it helps me make the show better. Our next show is with Ben Greenfield, who helps us take the plunge into the practice of using cold water to lose weight, rejuvenate your senses, and fend off disease.